that extraordinary can happen with a belief that you can change the world, with a belief that you have the boldness and the creativity to imagine something better, something different. On the footwear side of the business, we decided to make shoes that were more athletic, not only putting three stripes on them and making look like more athletic shoes, but from a functional perspective, to be more comfortable, to create a more dynamic connection with the ground and, and just bring all the know-how of Adidas to think about golf as a sport and to think about footwear and apparel as equipment. And that mindset really changed the fortune of Adidas Golf it wasn't an entrepreneurial startup situation, but it was a division of a great brand that really had no reason for being. And we gave it a reason for being, and we created purpose to our approach to golf. And the result of it was really changing the uniform of golf. We introduced a shoe in 2005 called the Tour 360, and it changed everything. It made every other golf shoe look old, look like your dad's pair of shoes, and really forever changed what golf footwear looked like. Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with the influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're new to the Mod Golf Podcast, thanks for joining us as we kick off Season 7 here. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today my guest is John Kawaja, president of Honma Golf. I've known John for over five years now, and I've seen firsthand his passion for innovating not only the golf industry, but across the spectrum of sport. John is a strategic global business executive with an accomplished and consistent record of delivering profitable growth. And John values, and I've seen this firsthand, John values creativity, collaboration, high energy, and the potential of employees who are empowered to create the future. So I'm going to leave that introduction there because I could talk about your almost 30-year career within the golf industry, John, but I'm going to let you kind of dig into that as we go here. So to start, hey, John, thanks so much for joining me today and welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast. Thank you, Colin. It's great to join you. I've listened to a number of these and uh, we've conversed over the years and, and kept in touch. I'm, I'm glad to uh, connect. Yeah, absolutely. I know, gosh, we haven't talked in, in almost close to a, a year now, so definitely want to catch up here to see what you've been up to. And I've seen a little bit just through social media in some press releases what you've been up to. So really looking forward to talking about that. Looking back, we actually met at the PGA show in 2014 when I was there with my Rip Links cap on with my Reviver Sport Entertainment business partner, Philip Davis. And we had a great conversation for over, uh, gosh, about an hour and a half there with Mark King and the executive team. Unfortunately, that the timing wasn't quite right for us to get anything off the ground. But here we are and both working on very interesting entrepreneurial things. And I really want to hear what you've been working on. But first, I, I want to start here, John, because you have a background in curling at a very elite level and we'll get into that. But can you Please tell us how you first got into the golf industry. Yeah, my very first job was in golf. I was 14 years old and looking to find a place to play free golf and make a little bit of money and started doing the typical entry-level stuff, working at a golf course. I was picking up the range and cleaning the carts and all that good stuff at the Donalda Club in Toronto and had summer jobs throughout high school. And while I was attending university in the summertime, I worked a long summer stint at the Fletcher Group, which is a golf distribution company out of Montreal that sold at the time McGregor Golf Equipment. We had Royal Golf Balls, we had All-Star Gloves, and we had Foot Joy Shoes. And I would call on 84 golf shops in the greater Toronto area. I would 
spend weekends doing custom fitting opportunities for members of private clubs to buy exotic skin Butchoy golf shoes, sold a whole bunch of them. And that was really my first experience in golf footwear. And many years later, of course, I would have an opportunity to reshape that business in a big way when I was with Adidas. But that was the beginning. Spent a number of years on the athletic footwear and apparel side of the industry with Adidas and then had an opportunity to come back to golf some 15, 16 years ago. Yeah. So looking back at the the beginning of your career, so you grew up in Toronto, I'm assuming, and went to York University there and got a business degree. Is that correct? I did, yeah. So we were growing up next door to each other. I grew up in Brampton, just a suburban Toronto there, so we were close by. So most people probably don't know this about you, but all your good friends do, but most of our audience is in the U.S. here with the podcast, and they're probably not aware that you performed at the highest global level in another sport, and that being curling, and you've won two briars, and in 1983, you also won the world championship or on that team. So maybe you can tell our audience here, first of all, what the heck a briar is and and your love and passion for curling and how you've transported that over into golf and the golf industry. Yeah. So being Canadian, curling is not a weird thing that happens for a couple of weeks every four years. And that's what fans or what casual fans in the United States, their opportunity to experience curling is really just at the Olympics. In Canada, it's broadcast every week. The teams are playing for a significant amount of money, playing in front of many thousands of people in arenas. It rivals the viewership of hockey in Canada. It's much different and smaller, obviously, in the United States. It's a quirky sport that I find most people that ask about it and are curious about it here in the United States are really interested. They can't understand it typically. They don't know the strategy, and strategy is a big part of curling, but they seem to be fascinated. And then that fascination goes away when the Olympics end. So (laughs) as a sport, it really hasn't caught on here. But anyways, I got started. My folks curled. The only way for me to get home from my elementary school was to walk a few miles to the curling club where my mom was playing in the afternoons and I would get a ride home because we lived out of town in a rural place. So I would watch my mom and kill time and ended up spending time on the ice learning and it became a huge passion of mine. I got good at it, good enough at 13 to say, I'm going to quit playing hockey which I wasn't very good at, (laughs) and pursued uh, a career in curling. At the time, it wasn't a career that you could make a living at, but it was something that for a 20-year-old kid to be able to put thirty or $40,000 in his pocket tax-free every year, it, it was a nice passion to have, and it consumed my life for 17 years. We won everything in the sport except for the Olympics. Uh, It was never an Olympic sport when I played. We won two briars, as you mentioned. Uh, The briar is the Canadian curling championship. And then we won two world championships as well. So yeah, it was a a really wonderful chapter in my life. When I played, it almost was my life. We lost the semifinal game in the Canadian Olympic trials to qualify for the Nagano Olympics, which was the first time that curling was going to be a medal sport. After that game, my responsibilities at Adidas Canada were growing. My family was growing. I was about to have my second child and uh, just thought it was the right time to bow out and call it a career. I was 37 years old at the time and uh, haven't thrown a rock since. Wow. They're good memories. I don't think about them very often living in Southern California, but proud of what we did as a team and, and the fun we had and moved on. As it relates to golf, most Canadians, the sports don't overlap at all, but they jut against each other perfectly. So when people are finished playing golf in Western Canada in mid-September, when it starts to get cold, that's when curling picks up. Right, right. And so there's a lot of curlers that are golfers and the other way around. So you literally hung up the curling shoes after that. 
that's a bit of a segue for me here to talk about one of your first jobs. And, uh, and that was with Bata Shoes that you were working, I believe, designing a curling shoe before you moved on to Adidas. So was that really the launch pad for you to then move into Adidas and then eventually into the golf space? Yeah, no doubt. And curling got me that job. They wanted to get into the curling shoe business. Uh, Bata was, at the time, a Canadian-based global footwear powerhouse. At the time, they had 8,000 retail stores. They made a million pairs of shoes a day in factories around the world. And their Canadian sports business wanted to get into curling. So they hired me to design and develop a curling shoe. I learned going through the BATA shoemaking courses and all of the education that they provide their young employees. I learned how to do all that stuff. It was all new to me to the point where I could drive down to our factory uh, just outside Belleville and build a pair of shoes myself. So it was a fantastic learning experience. Really interesting company, family owned. I had an opportunity to spend a lot of time around Tom and Sonia Bata, the founders, who were very inspirational. I have a pair of my curling shoes that I won the 1983 Briar with in the Bata Shoe Museum, which is downtown Toronto. Oh, very cool. At least I think they're still there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I got to be there in a couple of weeks' time, but maybe I'll pop into the museum. I haven't been there in a little while, so uh, I'll I'll see if your shoes are still there. I'll let you know. Yeah. Right. So, hey, so I wanted to talk about so when we first met five years ago, at that time you were president of TaylorMade Adidas Golf. So I'd love to hear about a bit of the journey with that experience spanning a couple of decades. There's a term in entrepreneurship for companies and organizations for having entrepreneurs within a company and that being an intrapreneur. And the bit of time we spent together, I, I had a chance to see the curtain pulled back a little bit and what was going on there. And I truly saw an entrepreneurial, innovative spirit there within TaylorMade Adidas Golf. So could you talk about that a little bit and how that's informed even what you're doing now with Honma Golf, that experience and taking some risks and being able to fail fast and then move on and, and iterate from there? Yeah, I'd love to. So after uh, 13 years with Adidas on the athletic footwear and apparel side of the business, I had an opportunity in early 2004 to join a subsidiary of Adidas in golf, which was the TaylorMade Golf Company. TaylorMade operated their, obviously, their equipment business, but also had the golf division of Adidas, which was obviously footwear and apparel. Both of the brands uh, had some number of uh, accessories as well. I joined the company as the president of Adidas Golf. We were doing Oh, $80 million a year globally in 2003. I joined a company that was very equipment focused. I would say the Adidas division of the business was definitely the the second cousin. And a lot of the energy and resources and talent were focused on the equipment side of the business. But the small Adidas golf team uh, that we had really focused on a strategy of not having Adidas fit into the world of golf, which was happening at the time. Actually, coincidentally, both Nike and Adidas were really apparel companies and athletic brands that were trying to fit into golf. And my first observation was, well, this is, seems ridiculous. We're an athletic brand with a 60-year heritage of making fantastic footwear and apparel for athletes. Why don't we be who we are? And so our apparel went from cotton-based products to synthetic fiber products that breathe and were color fast and washed well and were moisture wicking. And in a, a very short order, the golf apparel industry changed 180 to where even to this day, golfers won't settle for wearing cotton anymore for the most part, because it's just not practical. And, and from a performance perspective, it underperforms. Right On the footwear side of the business, we decided to make shoes that were more athletic, not only putting three stripes on them and making look like more athletic shoes, 
but from a functional perspective, to be more comfortable, to create a more dynamic connection with the ground and, and just bring all the know-how of Adidas to think about golf as a sport and to think about footwear and apparel as equipment. And that mindset really changed the fortune of Adidas Golf. We went from 80 million in, or we did 90 million in 2004. We were doing $450 million in 2010. Wow. That was a a really rewarding opportunity to be part of a big brand. Yeah, it wasn't an entrepreneurial startup situation, but it was a, a division of a great brand that really had no reason for being. And we gave it a reason for being, and we created purpose to our approach to golf. Mm -hmm. And the result of it was really changing the uniform of golf across footwear and apparel. And it can be debated whether Adidas or Nike led in those respects. Certainly on the apparel side, I would say we were both heading in the direction of synthetic fiber performance fabrics about the same time. But on the footwear side of the business, we introduced a shoe in 2005 called the Tour 360. The Tour 360 platform is still the platform at Adidas Golf, and it changed everything. Yeah. It made every other golf shoe look old, look like your dad's pair of shoes, and, and really forever changed what golf footwear looked like. Now, what I find really interesting about this, trying to do the math in my head there, from where the, the revenue was when you started to where it was in a couple of years, there is like a three or four times increase, if not even more than that. And that was within a golf market that wasn't expanding as far as the recreational player base by three or four times. So you obviously resonated and connected with the market segment. And I guess my question here is, did you do a lot of prepositioning to find out that's what the market wanted to, to see that you could align with that? Or did you just have that gut and develop that uh, as innovators? And then the market just responded to that positively and you captured a larger piece of the pie. The way I'd answer that is the decision to do so was practical from, and it was intuitive being a golfer. You just think back 20 years when, you know, looking at guys wearing khaki pants and cotton shirts on a hot day, they look like they've been through the ringer. (laughs) And a lot of it was, it was really simple strategy. We were Adidas. We were a sports brand with an incredible athletic performance heritage. And we were trying to make golf shirts to compete against brands like Fairway and Green. It didn't make sense. To compete against brands like Footjoy didn't make sense. We had to be who we were. Right. The advantage of being able to do this, to being able to really transform an industry from the strength of a brand that everybody's heard of, which is a little bit different than a startup brand that has to break through and have some kind of brand awareness to be able to grow as quickly as Adidas did. But the transformation in the industry was profound. I remember going to the PGA show in January of 2004. If there were 500 apparel brands exhibiting, and that's about the number of, believe it or not, the number of apparel brands that were exhibiting at the time, there were 490 that were selling cotton shirts. And two years later, the numbers literally flipped. 400 of the 500 brands were selling synthetic fiber, performance fabric, golf shirts because they're better. They've gotten so good now. I think when we started, there was a stigma of wearing polyester or wearing something that wasn't cotton. It wasn't as comfortable, but the fabrics are so highly developed now so that they're soft, they're color fast. You can wear them and wash them. And it was really simple technology. I had a lot of people say, I love wearing them because I can put two or three shirts in a bag, in a weekend bag, and I don't have to iron them. As simple as it sounds, that's technology. And sometimes the the most impactful technologies are the simplest to think about. They don't have to be that complicated. So guys really dug being able to not have to iron their golf shirts and not have to throw them away after three or four trips to the dry cleaners. 
stick them in the wash, take them out and you can wear them. So yeah, that was a rewarding professional chapter to have an opportunity to be part of something that changes an industry as much as we did was a fantastic experience. It happened to coincide with our sister company, TaylorMade, that we're literally going through the same kind of transformation and growth. I think TaylorMade in 2003 was a $400, $450 million company, and in 2012 was a $1.2 billion company. Wow. Almost tripled. Yeah. So as a combined entity, in the time that I was there, we had compound annual growth of over 10% in an industry that was declining. Yeah. And to your point, Colin, I think just speaking to how that happened, I mean, that that's obviously an extraordinary result. And I think it says that extraordinary can happen with a belief that you can change the world, with a belief that you have the boldness and the creativity to imagine something better, something different. Right, right. We always at TaylorMade challenged ourselves to create a cultural shift in golf, to change the language of golf, to always have the hot product that people were talking about. And you don't do that by quietly and politely updating last year's product. You need to create a product that truly differentiates, that innovates. There's only really been four or five real breakthrough innovations in golf. If you think about the Ping I2 iron back in the mid-70s, which was the first real cavity back iron. If you think about solid golf balls, Titleist will take credit for it, but Spalding actually invented a high-performance solid golf ball, which was demonstrably better than wound golf balls at the time. Yeah, yeah. And then TaylorMade had two of the most significant ones in really golf history. On the equipment side, you can credit Eli Callaway with the development of the Big Bertha, which was the first oversized metalwood. Mm -hmm. But before that, TaylorMade was the inventor of the metalwood. So I'm not sure that there's a better example of a chasm in innovation than the shift from persimmon woods to metalwoods. And that really was the birth of TaylorMade. And then two other significant innovations during the time that I was there. Uh, in 2004, we invented movable weight technology, which really created a, a product that was capable of mass customization. Mm -hmm. And then in 2009, I'd say an innovation that's maybe a bit overlooked, but when we launched the R9 in 2009, it was the first driver with a mechanical connection between the head and the shaft, which again, allowed for more customization, more custom fitting. In two minutes, you could switch shafts. It continues to have a profound effect on golf in terms of how consumers shop and in terms of how retailers and fitters sell golf equipment for the good and the bad. What I find fascinating here, yeah, you've really put a lot out there really to motivate and galvanize the team and the staff at TaylorMade and you're moving so fast in order to keep them seeing what's important. It really comes down to your culture and you didn't use the, the word culture, but it really comes down to that in my mind. You obviously had that North Star of innovation and what it is that gets you out of bed every single morning. You mentioned it earlier, it's like getting back to your roots. What defines us? We're not going to create products like them using materials or performing like that. We're going to be who we are. It's in our DNA. So before we move on, because I do want to talk about all the good things you're doing with Home Golf and what you did in a pure entrepreneurial sense in between there. Can you perhaps elaborate a little bit of the culture of innovation and what really that purpose and that why was that kept everybody motivated when things were grinding away? And I know as an entrepreneur, it's not always easy, mm -hmm. whether you're in a big company or on your own, that you've got good moments, you've got dips, yeah. and you just got to hold on to that vision of what you're doing. So can you tell us a little bit about that with the culture of, uh, of innovation within TaylorMade Adidas Golf? Sure. 
you know, in a company that had a upward trajectory to its business for many years in a row, like nine years in a row, the time when I was there and a few years before I got there, the challenge to grow is an innovator's delight because you need to figure out new and better ways to deliver performance to golfers. And the buying habits of golfers are they think they can hit it a little bit further or a little bit straighter or a little bit farther than the other three guys that they play with. They're going to buy it. And so at our company, really the superstars of the company were the employees that I'd say were our creative energy. And really, they were from all areas of the company. We had a a leader at the time, Mark King, who you've referred to, who had a real knack for hearing out and discovering ideas from all different parts of the company. I literally could have been the janitor who had an idea. And we listened and we valued that the best ideas come closest to the market and closest to the customer and closest to the truth. In golf, products don't lie, so it can't just be a gimmick. It has to perform. We fortunately had really smart people. We had a backbone of strong R&D and product creation people. But more importantly, we had creative ideas that came from, and it was encouraged for the creativity to really come from anywhere. Could have been the secretary. We don't say secretary anymore, assistant. And that was, in a nutshell, the magic of the culture at TaylorMade. If you were outside the company, now that I'm outside that company and part of its history at the time, I hear a lot of people saying, we thought it was a madhouse in there. We could never really understand how you guys were doing it and why you were doing it. All we knew is that you were kicking our butts. Admittedly, there were times when I'm not sure in the moment we knew where the road was headed, but we had an instinct that we had to go there because we just were not going to be satisfied with a prettier version or a, a coat of paint on a technology that we had last year or the year before. We felt that we had the horsepower and we had the benefit of 80 of the 150 tour players playing our products. So when we innovated, we were able to almost immediately become the number one played driver on tour and almost immediately become overwhelmingly the obvious choice of the best players in the world. And they chose to be with us. I mean, everybody pays the same money between Titleist, Callaway, TaylorMade, and Ping. The number one guy in the world is going to get the same amount, no matter who he signs with. So it really came down to the kind of company these players wanted to be around the kind of products they wanted to play and the kind of service that they wanted on tour. So we were fortunate to combine the entrepreneurial spirit of the company and the creativity of of the people that were employed at TaylorMade with the assets that we had built. And it created a, a marketplace leadership opportunity that we were determined to kind of put distance between ourselves and everybody else for a long, long time. Nice. Nice. Hey, I wanted to ask you this, just with golf, as we very well know, uh, unless it's the Ryder Cup or President's Cup, it is an individual sport. And it sounds like you grew up like I did playing a lot of team sports, you said with hockey and then of course with curling. Mm -hmm. Very curious to hear, John, everything that you've learned as far as being at a high performance team or teams in the curling space, what have you taken away or how has that informed you in your professional and business life as far as team building and engaging and empowering other people there? So what, what have you taken away? from that team aspect, success from curling that helped you part of your secret sauce in your professional life? Yeah, in curling, the element of teamwork that really is the most important is trust. There's trust and communication. Those are the two things. You you obviously have to have talent. Good teams, teams that won weren't 
always the teams with the most talent, yeah. but teams that had an element of, I trust my teammates. In curling, it's a complex thing, and I won't get into the intricacies because that's probably lost on a lot of the audience. But one guy throws a rock, and he has to let it go. And the two sweepers are really responsible for making that shot happen or not happen because they can influence the length that the rock travels by as much as 8 to 10 feet. Mm-hmm. And in a game where 2 inches means the difference between a made shot and a missed shot, Obviously, really, it's the thrower's responsibility to give the sweepers a chance to make the shot perfect. And then from a communication perspective in in the sport, everybody's yelling and screaming to the untrained eye. But all of those yells and screams are meant to communicate different things. The thrower of the rock has a feel for how hard he threw it or the line that he threw it on. The skip who's holding the broom is going to communicate whether the shot is inside or outside the target. And the two sweepers are going to communicate whether the rock is thrown heavy or light. And all those things have to be communicated and computed. And then the decisions have to be made based on usually, (laughs) usually based on how loud somebody's yelling. And so that's what I learned playing a sport. And I think those things are important from a business perspective. Effective teams are collaborative, are creative, want to hear ideas, want to be challenged. And when they're challenged, that's really when you put trust to the test. Are you going to clam up and keep all your ideas to yourself because somebody's got a slightly different version of the same idea? Or are you going to talk about it, challenge each other, and come up with really perfect an idea that can be an innovation game changer? So there's parallels, I think, to a lot of sports, both team sports and individual sports. I think there's parallels to playing any one of those sports at a high level and innovating and and operating a business at a high level. I I think there's all kinds of things to learn. And the library is full of books that have great stories that would bear that out. But my practical experience is if I had a choice between someone who's been a competitive athlete and someone who hasn't for a lot of jobs, I want the athlete on my team. Even if, let's say, it was in an individual sport where they haven't relied on uh, on others as much, even though we know full well in the backdrop there, that it, it does take a complete team and a crew at a high level, whether you're a tennis player, whether you're a golfer, there's certainly all that. So I guess it really does depend on the individual also, I would assume. Yeah, and I think individual sport athletes bring a different element. Either way, if they performed a sport at a high level, their level of commitment, their level of dedication to being the best that they can be to be prepared, to train, to be ready for the moment. You know, all those things are attributes you want on a guy that's sitting across the table from you, helping to come up with ideas to make the business more successful. Gotcha. gotcha. And and that rings true with entrepreneurship. The, the successful entrepreneurs, the, the, the character traits there is having that resiliency and having that tenacity also mm-hmm. to uh, keep grinding away because there is so much work that no one sees behind the scenes to, to get you to that level of success. Yeah. And there are lots, lots of dips along the way. So speaking about startups and, uh, and entrepreneurial culture. I wanted to talk about your next move after you've finished up as president with TaylorMade Adidas Golf. You took a little bit of time off there and then you became president of Victory. Can you tell us a bit about that experience and what Victory was all about? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about it briefly. I joined a pure startup, which was a content publishing platform for athletes. And so the idea was that we would create a platform for athletes to communicate with their fans and the other way around by creating interesting content, by using our athlete partners to create and publish that content or create it, we would publish it for them. The revenue was an ad play. It was a very interesting idea in the tech space. You got to move fast. You have to get from your pitch deck to a, a functioning product to something that you can 
begin to create revenue with very quickly, especially in a space that is a combination of media slash social media. So as a, a foray into true entrepreneurship, where I couldn't hide behind a 60-year-old brand that everyone in the world knew, like Adidas. It was a really interesting learning experience. And sometimes when entrepreneurs say it was a learning experience, means you hear, oh, it failed. Yes. And in fact, this thing was, it felt a year in, like we were trying to sell MySpace when Facebook was around. Technology-wise, the idea had gone past its past due date. And as a lot of your listeners can relate, you know, I'd spent my whole life creating products, building brands, and finding ways to capture the imagination of the athlete, the golfer, the consumer. And uh, most of my time at Victory was raising money, which was a necessary part of the job, but it wasn't something that really fired me up. So I stepped back from the operating side of that business about a year into it. I chalk it up to, again, a great learning experience. I got a kick out of putting together pitch decks and figuring out ways to motivate investors to be interested. But at the end of the day, I wanted to get back something more strategic, something more brand building and something closer to the consumer. So great chapter in my life. Had a fun time. Could really sincerely say that I would never do it again. (laughs) Not that innovation and entrepreneurship off the table. It's just the vehicle at which you try and innovate and create that for me is something that I, I would rather do it in something that is truly close to product and something that, you know, that I, I think I can bring value to. Right. Well, I know you well enough. I know you love to build stuff, including brands and product, and you needed to get back into that. And thank you for sharing that story. Because I know with uh, with entrepreneurs that are listening out there, they just need that reinforcement that not everything works out as a home run to knock it out of the park. And that's okay. And you move on and you take uh, the learnings from that and then apply it to the next thing you do. And that brings us to the next thing that you are doing now. So uh, I'd love to hear the story of Home of Golf and how you got involved and what you're doing there now. And maybe you can start off for the people that don't know out there. Maybe talk about the brand positioning and a little bit of the elevator pitch for Homer Golf. Why don't you, why don't you tell us about that first, John? Sure. Yeah. So Hanma is a really fascinating story. It's a 61-year-old company based in Japan. They've made high-end, high-performance, and super premium products for all of that time. We're the only company that manufactures its own golf shafts. So we design and make the club, not just the components. It's a brand that's revered in other parts of the world, in Japan, Korea, China, Southeast Asia. If you own Hanma golf clubs, never mind whether you play golf or not, a lot of people own them and just as a status symbol. It's a brand that really carries a lot of reverence. On the performance side of golf, they've got a wonderful history of making super high-crafted, meticulous, beautiful products that perform really well. And this has really been, and still to a large extent, is a, an unknown to North American golfers. So a couple of summers ago, my old friend Mark King and I had an opportunity to meet a Chinese businessman who owned Hanma. He's a multi-billionaire, younger guy, like 50 years old. He had bought Hanma eight or nine years ago and built it to a $250 million business, most of that business coming out of Asian countries, Asian markets. And he wanted to be a global player and wanted to really break through in the biggest golf market in the world, the United States. And between the United States and Canada uh, represents 52% of the addressable market for golf. So we met with him. He asked us to help. We said yes. We were curious. Really, the fascination for both of us, I think, was what a great brand. And we took a trip over to the factory and saw some of the know-how and craftsmanship that existed within this company that we did not see at TaylorMade. 
So that was motivating. And I'd say the biggest motivating factor was the passion that this owner had for his brand and for his desire to be a global leader in golf equipment. So yeah, we started working with him. We gave him some ideas on how to succeed in North America. I came on full-time to run the business beginning of 2019. We really spent the last year fixing, building, and learning. I'd say we've been in investment mode for 12 months. We needed an upgraded people and some of the operational capabilities, systems, and things that would allow us to have a chance to move towards this big ambition that the owner had. And we're really just now at an inflection point where our model is more direct-to-consumer focused than typical golf brands. When we thought about how to succeed, your muscle memory says, well, we knew how to do it at TaylorMade, but Honma was in a much different situation, obviously much smaller scale, different brand positioning. Honma is about super premium and premium performance products. We have, believe it or not, in our super premium product line, which is called Berez, we have drivers. Actually, every set of our five-star Berez golf equipment sells for $4,500 a stick. Right. So if you're buying 14 clubs and a bag and head covers, you're writing a check for about $65,000 and we sell them every day. Wow. Got an order for them today. So that required different thinking than the muscle memory from our success at TaylorMade. I would say for a company that you know is publicly traded, that's majority owned by one guy in China, I would say it's a very entrepreneurial situation because it's a clean slate with a beautiful brand that has incredible heritage and history and an owner that wants to grow, grow fast, be big. And so it's really a fantastic opportunity to think about it in a a very entrepreneurial way. How are we going to make this brand succeed? How are we going to tell these stories? How are we going to go to market? How are we going to compete against the big four brands here in North America? And our tactics are much different than the way that other golf companies operate. As I mentioned, we're very direct to consumer oriented. We believe that 60% of our revenue will be transacted directly with the consumer. We have nine mobile experience vans that hit nine different markets on January 1st. So literally there's a significant inflection point in our, in the growth of this small company. We signed Justin Rose last year, who was at the time the number one player in the world. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So it's been a a really fun and busy year. We're not done fixing or building or learning, but this inflection to where we now have launched our direct-to-consumer business and our custom business feels to us like we're moving into the next phase of growing Honma in this market, and that's connecting with consumers in a direct way and starting to grow the business. So it's exciting. It's uh, really cool to work with a brand at a startup level that has so much going for it. Besides that, I love going to Japan. I love Japanese culture. And I think the way that they live and eat and drink and, and their approach to life is very civilized. So my travel is to places that I uh, really kind of agrees with how I like to live my life. Yeah. Have you been working on your Japanese? How's that coming along? It's non-existent. <laughs> Just smile a lot and have other people with you. Yeah, they speak very good English. And I've been around them enough to know that if I don't put my hand over the beer jar when we're out for dinner, things could get ugly. Yeah, I've, I can relate to that. I've spent time in Japan and in China also. And yes, they definitely want to keep you happy and be a good host by making sure that your drink is always full. Like it kind of dangerous really quickly here. 
So, hey, just wanted to mention this. I love the positioning and the brand strategy here with Hanma, that if you want to use the car industry analogy here, I'm just going to give this a shot. If you look at TaylorMade Adidas Golf as, let's say, a BMW or an Audi, that you're coming out of the gate more as a Bentley or a Maserati or a Ferrari. So it's that luxury, super premium brand. And that market is expanding. Have you seen that when you kind of step back and look at the business model canvas, that there's more opportunity, whereas in the middle there with all those other companies, they're fighting over the scraps of a stagnant recreational golf population? In, in a sense, yes, because if people do know or have heard about Hanma, they think about gold-plated drivers with platinum barrels and fancy precious metals and ridiculous price points. And I shouldn't say ridiculous, but I mean, high compared to paying $500 or for a driver. Right. And we have the, that business and it's something that we've become very well known for. It's a good business of ours, this super premium business that we brand Berez. But we also have a premium performance business under the sub-brand of T-World. It's premium and elevated. The product's beautiful. When you walk into a, a retail store, the way we show up at retail is more elevated premium way. But our price points aren't that much higher than Callaway Ping Titleist. $600 drivers, $650 drivers, $1,200 iron sets. We're in the consideration set of anybody who's thinking of buying anything from Titleist, Callaway, TaylorMade Ping. Right. Looking at this, and t- tell me if I'm wrong on this, but with the other golf companies, including some that you worked on in the past, the primary motivator for purchasing is obviously you want something that's cool and other people are using, but it's also a lot of functionality. So it's rationally or functionally driven through performance. We're not saying that Homa doesn't have that performance, but is it fair to say that it is more of an emotional purchase or a product as compared to the functionality that the others rely on as part of their selling? You know, we, we see this all the time. We have people pick up our product and say, oh my God, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then have a chance to experience the performance and they're blown away. So, you know, you might say, okay, well, how does that happen in a company that may not have the resources that a TaylorMade or a Callaway has because we're not as big? And the, the truth of the matter is we aren't as big, but we're a very profitable company and we've got this incredible heritage and craftsmanship that goes back 61 years. And some of our Takumis, some of our high, the highest level of craftsmen in the factory have been doing it for 30 or 40 years. And they know ways to make a product beautiful, but they also know how to, they know how to make a golf club perform. And that's what really blew us away. And golf equipment on the Metalwood side, the simpler you can make it, simpler and lighter you can make it, the more opportunity you have to create a performance difference. And Justin Rose, when we signed him, was really sold on the Japanese forgings that we do in our irons. He was doubtful that he was ever going to like a driver that we made. And he found four miles an hour of ball speed compared to the gamer that got him to number one in the world. First week out last year, he won at Torrey Pines at Farmers with 12 Hanma clubs in his bag, which is two more than his contract, including a driver that had a Hanma shaft. So the product not only looks beautiful, you can feel and see the craftsmanship in what we do, but it's incredibly high performing as well. And I haven't had a player where we can't find a performance benefit from the products uh, when we put it in their hands. 
we're dealing with a, working with a couple more PGA Tour players now. And the, honestly, the easiest part of convincing them or, or getting them interested in Hanma is the performance of the product. So it sounds like your products appeal to both sides of the brain then, both the uh, emotional and creative side and also the rational and performance-driven side too. So you've just expanded your market there as you go. Yeah. Well, hey, I, I seriously, I can talk to you for another hour here, John, but I need to respect your time and might give us a reason to check back in in another year from now and see where things are going with you and also with Home Golf. Before I do leave you though, I, I do want to ask a couple more quick questions here. You having so much experience in the golf industry and sport, pull out a crystal ball here and where do you see trends and areas that golf in the next year or a couple of years or where you see for golf, not necessarily to grow, I don't like using that term, grow the game, but let's say to transform and evolve the game, to even make it more accessible for more people, to make it relevant for the long term. What are your thoughts? Well, I think with everything that's happening with connected products, I think 5G is going to create an opportunity for innovation and clever people that's going to change our world in almost every respect. And I think sports is no different. I think 5G and this idea of data and connected equipment, connected bodies, being able to create a feedback loop is going to create opportunities on the equipment side or the footwear and apparel side of the industry. That doesn't necessarily get more people playing. If you want to talk about the general health of the sport of golf, I do think that there's going to be a movement back to playing golf for its health benefits. Being outside, walking for four, four and a half hours and do it in the company of people you want to spend four and a half hours with, hopefully, is, I'd say, going to be more appealing. It might be uh, a bit anecdotal and introspective, but I see more young people being interested in, in golf, not watching it, but playing. You know, I've got a 22-year-old son who really was not interested at all in golf. He was a competitive baseball player, played NCAA Division One baseball, and quit after his sophomore year. And all of his former baseball buddies from high school all of his baseball buddies and his chums in college, they're all getting into golf. So I, I don't know if it was an introduction from opportunities like going to a Top Golf and having some fun and having a couple of beers and, and, and hitting a golf ball, which isn't golf, but it's a golfing experience. It has anything to do with it? Probably does. But they're fired up about golf. Okay. It was his birthday yesterday, and he, he wanted to play golf with his buddies. That's what he wanted to do for the day. And again, that's maybe a little too close to home, but I, I do think that golf has always had a, a way to appeal to whether your motivation is social connection, business connections, spending four or five hours with your buddies, spending four or five hours away from the obligations of a household, being in the sun and outside and fresh air. For whatever reason, people have always played. I think that will always exist. And yeah, we're, the golf population is getting older, but it seems that there's a generation, 25 and under, that are discovering all of those wonderful benefits of the game of golf. And I'm, I'm bullish on, on golf having a future and is something that I think will have a lifelong appeal. I, I don't see golf going the way of tennis or bowling. Nice. Well, hey, I will leave our conversation on that positive note. Once again, I'd love to check back in with you another year or so, get you on the podcast. We'll get an update on that to see how how, how things are going. So, hey, John Kawaja, president of Hanma Golf and past president of TaylorMade Adidas Golf. It's been great chatting with you today and providing your insights on golf, curling, life, business, startups. I appreciate it all, John. So, uh, so thanks for spending the time on the Mod Golf Podcast today. Happy to do so, Colin, and happy to connect. Good stuff. All right, you take care. So that's a wrap for the first episode of Season 7 of the Mod Golf Podcast. 
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John Kawaja, president of Hanma Golf North America, as he walked us through his entrepreneurial journey in the golf industry. John has made the generous offer to give away one of their high-performance TR20 drivers and the additional prize of getting a custom fit by the Hanma team if you live close to one of their mobile fitting facilities. For your chance to win, either send us a message through our contact page on our mod.golf website or email me directly at colin, C-O-L-I-N, at modgolfpodcast.com. You can also enter by following us on social media, as we'll be running the contest until the end of February 2020. If you'd like to learn more about John and Hanma Golf, go to our episode show page where we've included additional links and content. Please join me next time when my guest is Shella Silla, founder of Sister Golf. I'd like to extend my gratitude and thanks to our sponsor partners, British Columbia Golf and Golf Genius Software, for help making the Mod Golf podcast happen. Without their support, I wouldn't be able to bring you these engaging stories from the golf industry's brightest innovators and influencers. If you enjoyed this conversation about entrepreneurship in the golf industry, you can find more of our innovation stories on previous episodes at mod.golf, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go for your podcast fix. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks very much for joining me. Bye for now.